0: If I do not wash you. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do... You do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him into the world. Thank you that it was according to your purpose. No accident, but according to your purpose from all eternity. And we're grateful, Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ having this confidence while he was in the world to do everything according to your will and even to suffer on our behalf and then to return to you. He believed it, he knew it, he was determined. We pray, Lord, that we will learn from this passage the kind of love he had for us, what he has accomplished for us, that we might be rejuvenated and encouraged in our faith to live accordingly the example that He set before us, may we follow His example. May we be washed and continually washed until the day that we meet you face to face. In Jesus' name, Amen. We now, in chapter 13 of John, have come to the last major action or event in the book of John before the arrest and crucifixion of Christ. When... This happens in John 13. It happens as it says in 13 verse 1, before the feast of the Passover. They did eventually celebrate the feast of the Passover, but this incident occurs before they celebrate the feast of Passover. And Jesus is has just finished His last discourse in the book of John, which was in chapter 12. And now He's going to conduct privately this Event or this action of washing his disciples' feet before the Passover comes, before he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and before he is arrested, crucified, buried, then raised from the dead. This happens before the Passover. It says in the heading of John 13, the last Passover, in some of your Bibles it may say that, It may be that, but it's likely not that. This incident probably occurred before the Passover, a couple of days before the Passover. Let's set the setting first when this event happened. When did it happen? Did it happen before the day of the Passover or did it happen before the meal of the Passover, during the Passover? In in that way, when did this event happen? There are these two interpretations. Your Bible may say it happened at the last Passover before they partook of the meal, this washing of the disciples' feet. That's when it happened. However, it says here, before the feast of the Passover, chapter 13, verse 1. Shall we keep our place here and turn to Matthew 26? Matthew 26. Here, in fact, it does describe that they were at someone's house two days before the Passover where this likely occurred. Where this likely occurred. Matthew 26 actually describes some major events in the last days of Christ, in the last week of Christ. In verses Matthew 26, 1 to 13, this incident that occurs at the house of Simon the leper, at the house of Simon the leper, two days before. Then in Matthew 26, 14 to 19, it shows that Judas went to strike a bargain with the chief priests. He went to do so. Then he comes to the Passover, the last Passover, in verses 20 to 35, or 20 to 30. Verses 20 to 30, they eat the last Passover together, the last Passover that Christ partook of. And then he, Christ, institutes the Lord's Supper at that last Passover in verses 26 to 30. Then, in 31 and following... His disciples, they deny that they will ever deny Christ. Then the Garden of Gethsemane in 36 to 46, He's in the Garden and He's praying in the Garden. Then 47 to 56, He is arrested. He's arrested. That's the sequence likely, chronological sequence of events that Matthew describes. So this incident of washing the feet... Did it happen at the house of Simon the leper or did it happen at the other house of the unknown owner of the house and did it happen right at the Passover feast? Since John says it happened before the feast of the Passover, it likely did not happen on the day of the Passover. You see? In Matthew 26, he describes when it did happen. Let's read along. Twenty six one to thirteen, and it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, "You know that after two days is, uh, after two days the Passover is coming. After two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. After two days, if this incident in twenty six one to thirteen happened two days before." it would give Judas time the next day to go strike a deal with the, with the chief priests to betray Christ at an opportune time and then to do so in the Garden of Gethsemane, which happens later in Matthew. But then after the two days, the next day, the Passover feast, it begins. That's when they eat the Passover together and Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper at that point. Let's keep reading. Matthew 26, verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, Not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Verse 6, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, What is the point of this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of her, of in memory of her. It appears that Matthew records at the house of Simon the leper this incident of the woman, Mary, uh, washing or his feet, Christ's feet, with this ointment and rubbing it on his feet with her hair. But John records what Jesus did by washing the feet of the disciples. That Jesus washed the feet of the disciples on the same occasion. John likely is recording that. So if we take it that way, let's now go back to John 13. Of course, in terms of the interpretation of the content, it's unaffected by the chronology, but... Since John said before the Feast of the Passover, I think it's instructive to compare this passage with Matthew 26. So, now John 13. In 13, we have a few main sections here at the first part of the chapter. In chapter 13, the part we read in 1 to 11, we have 13, 1 to 3, even though it does not have a paragraph break, because it's in mid-sentence. But in 13, 1 to 3, John prefaces Jesus washing the disciples' feet by saying that all of this is according to the plan of God. And Jesus knew it. So what's about to happen in the life of Christ, and what He's about to do even by washing His disciples' feet, has to do with the love of Christ for us. It's all in the mind of Christ He has purpose. He is determined to do what He's about to do for us because He loves us. Verses 1 to 3. Then in verses 4 to 11, we have the introduction to Him washing the disciples' feet. And specifically with Simon Peter. Washing the feet of Simon Peter and this exchange, the dialogue he has with Simon Peter. Likely, Simon Peter was the first foot or first feet, his feet were the first ones to be washed, and he spoke up to stop it. And then he allows it. That's likely what's happening. We do have an indication that he began, because it says in verse 5, began to wash the disciples' feet. So he's beginning the process of it. He comes to Simon, Simon Peter, and Simon Peter objects, And then he relents and says, yes, do it, Lord. So this is the introduction to it. But there was a reason Jesus did this. What was the reason he did it? He tells Simon Peter, you don't understand now, but hereafter you will. I'm about to explain it to you. You're about to learn. And that lesson is both in this passage, but also in verses 12 to 20. In verses 12 to 20, He says, for example, in verse 14, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And in 15, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. He wants to teach them these final lessons on humility and redemption. It's both having to do with his redemption of his people, and humility that accompanies those who are redeemed. Humility and redemption go together. Those who are saved also have a practice of being humble and helping and loving one another, which he highlights in chapter 13, chapter 13, 34 to 35. Chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you lo- love one another, even as I love you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And the love for one another will be born of humility. If we have humility, then the love will be expressed. If we don't have humility, humbleness, then love won't be expressed. The two go together. This is what we have in our passage. First though, the cleansing, the redemption, the washing in humility that though um, the plan of God was for Jesus to die, it did not happen without without suffering, without Jesus humbling himself and teaching us to humble ourselves if we are in him. If we are in Christ, we also will be humble. Let's now see in more detail. Verse 1, chapter 13 and verse 1. Jesus knowing, this is a long sentence, Jesus knowing that His hour had come, that He should depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus, what did He know? What did He assume with what was about to happen? He knew that His hour his hour had come. Chapter 12, chapter twelve, verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 27, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. And now 13, verse 1. Jesus knowing that His hour, his hour had come. It has now arrived. And what is the hour he means? He doesn't mean the hour of the day in a clock. He means the time for his death to occur. That time of persecution unto death has indeed occurred. Um, It's coming, and that's why he's preparing in this way. So when his death does occur, and by implication, his burial and resurrection, ascension it would mean that He would depart out of this world. And in the sense of time, how much time, it was in about 50 days. Because from Passover to Pentecost was about 50 days. This is the week before Passover. And then 10 days before Pentecost, He ascended into heaven. So we have roughly 40 or 50 days. And that's this last hour which in which He's going to be crucified and then eventually depart out of this world. Depart out of this world in what way? In his physical body. His physical body was on the earth for approximately 33 and a half years. He was in the world physically for 33 and a half years. Physically, his body would go out of the world, ascend into heaven. Acts chapter 1. 9 to 11, he ascends into heaven. In that sense, he departs out of the world. But he's not departing out of the world and leaving us alone. He's not departing out of the world and not dwelling in us anymore. He's not departing out of the world and leaving no Holy Spirit to dwell in us. That becomes clear in chapters 14, 15, and 16 he emphasizes again and again in chapters 14 to 16, before he actually does leave the world, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have not left us. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are with us. They are with us in this world. For example, chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 14, 14, and 15. Our prayers are assured in Christ, to be answered in Christ. Chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold Him or know Him, but you know Him and, and because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What about verse 23? 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves Me... He will keep my word and my Father will love Him and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. Make our dwelling with Him. We will live in them. Father, Son, and even Holy Spirit as we read in 14, 16, and 17. They are not departing from us but He, Jesus, in His body, humanity departs out of this world to heaven, to the Father, having accomplished the work of the Father. Speaking of that accomplished work, he s- explains this in chapter 16, 1628. 1628. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. He came forth from the Father into the world, leaving the world again and going to the Father. He knew this. This was already in His purpose. Furthermore, John 13, verse 1 says, He loved His own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. He loved them His own. John speaks of it in the past tense. He speaks of it in the past tense because Jesus speaks of it in the past tense. Notice that? He hasn't reached the end yet. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't risen yet. He hasn't ascended yet. But John speaks of it in the past tense having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He spoke of it in the past. For example, keep your place here. Keep your place here and turn to John 17. Speaking of things in the past tense or present tense when the event hasn't happened yet, John 17, verse eleven verses eleven and twelve. Verses eleven and twelve. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the Son of Perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This prayer in John 17 is a prayer before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, correct? But Jesus, when He's speaking of what He has accomplished, He says, I am no more in the world. He says, I'm not in the world anymore, but He is in the world. What does He mean? He's meaning that this is so much fixed in the predetermined plan of God. This is so much in the decree of God that it is a certainty that these things will happen. That's why he says it in that way. He also says here that in verse 12, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. Well, he was with them for a long time, but he's still going to be with them for some more time. But he says it in such a way that he's not with them anymore. He's going to be with them For 40 days with many convincing proofs showing that He had, in fact, risen from the dead, right? He's going to be with them in that way. It says, I guarded them. He guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Guarded them? You mean He's not going to guard them anymore? Of course He's going to guard them some more. And then it says here, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, Well, who perished already? Who perished already? Judas Iscariot is the one he means there. But Judas Iscariot didn't perish yet by murdering himself. That doesn't happen until a few days later in John 27, verses 3 to 5. i mean, sorry, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 3 to 5. There he does murder himself. Matthew 27, 3 to 5. That didn't happen yet. He still there among the disciples. The disciples don't know yet that Judas Iscariot is the betrayer. They're going to know that in chapter 18, but not now. And yet he is said to have perished. So, having said this, we should gain assurance, gain confidence, that whenever God speaks His word, even if the event has not yet happened, His word is certain, we should believe it. We should believe His word. Moreover, what is it in this part that we should believe? We should believe that He loves us. It says, having loved His own who were in the world, meaning the people, not just the twelve or the eleven disciples, the apostles, but all of us who are in the world. We are not of the world, but we live in the world. That's why he says, in the world. We who are in the world, we still have to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. In the world, until our full redemption is experienced in heaven. These are the ones he has loved and loved them to the end. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, Romans five verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love he means. Galatians two verse twenty. Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Paul speaks of Christ's love for him even though he was not a believer in John chapter 13 or in John chapter 17. It took some time before he became a believer. And this is the love he has for Paul, for the eleven, and also for you and me. Romans 5.8. That's the demonstration of God's love. Christ died for us. Well, then, in contrast to Christ's love for us, our love for him, in our redemption, we have an amazing truth here. A a truth that's not only evident here in this passage, but throughout Scripture. That those who experience the ultimate of truth, who have the amazing privilege of being with the righteous prophets and apostles, the amazing privilege in this case of being with Christ our Lord during His ministry, that those who have immense and tremendous abundant access to the way of salvation reject that way this is illustrated with this one individual right here in Judas it says in verse 2 and during supper during supper the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon to betray him this is the context satan or the devil Already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. According to the passage we read, John seventeen twelve, he's the son of perdition, he's already gone and lost. There's no hope for him. He perishes, he's destroyed forevermore. John seventeen twelve. It also says in John thirteen eighteen, uh John thirteen eighteen, I do not speak of all of you, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Long ago, God had determined, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And it was written in Psalm 41, nine, Psalm 41, nine, that Judas would in fact do so. Eating with Christ having that great privilege of communing with Christ. And usually, the people who eat with us are the people who are like-minded. Correct? Usually. But this shows that it's not the case. It shows that Judas Iscariot, a son of the devil, influenced by the devil, never repented, was lost forevermore, is lost forevermore, was someone who had the great privilege of enjoying the spiritual food of Christ and the physical food of Christ. He was in the presence of Christ in that way and yet had the audacity, had so much stubborn unbelief in him that he was willing to betray Christ. This was Judas. And Jesus is about to wash the feet of Judas. In Jesus' case, he knew it in advance. In our cases, we don't often know in advance. There are a few examples in Scripture where the people knew in advance, but in other cases, they did not know in advance. And in most cases, we don't know in advance. The people who fellowship with us, who worship with us, commune with us, may be our own spouse, whether husband or wife, may be our own children, may be our own parents, may be our own siblings, brother or sister, may be our relatives, Maybe those in the church, maybe our coworker, who for a while play the part. For a while, everything is fine. But once the truth goads them, once they are pricked, once they hear what they don't want from the Holy Scripture, they reject it, and they reject those who continue to believe it. This is how it happens. We see it It doesn't matter where, right? Adam and Eve had Cain in the family who murdered Abel. Cain, an unbeliever, in the very first family. The world was not full of people at that time. Not in the first family, that age. There were just tens of people in the world in the first family until they were old enough and married. Just tens of people, according to one Ancient source, they believe that Adam and Eve had 56 children. Remember, Adam lived to be 930 years old, that they had 56 children. So, 56 children plus mother and father, 58 people on the earth. That's why I said tens of people. And before all the other siblings were born, Cain murdered Abel. Cain murdered Abel. Genesis chapter 4. In the family of Abraham, Abraham had both Hagar, one of his wives, and Ishmael, both unbelievers in his own family. In the family of Isaac and Rebekah. In this case, Isaac and Rebekah, they were told in advance that one of their twin sons would be reprobate. They were told before they were born, they were told that. Genesis chapter 25. Verse 23, they were told beforehand. Esau reprobate, Jacob elect. They were told that in advance, in their own family. And we find this example here. In Jesus' own ministry, he had these men so close to him, and Judas was unsuspected by the rest of the disciples. The disciples don't know when Jesus announces, truly one of you will betray me, they don't know which one he's talking about. They don't know which disciple because all 12 disciples were living righteously and preaching the truth, the true gospel, faithfully to that point until it happens here. Yet Jesus is loving his enemy and doing good to those who persecute him. To this point he is. Even to Judas, teaching us humility in this way, verse three, John 13: three Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Remember verse uh, chapter 1628 which we read, "I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. This he knew, but he also knew what that everything was in His hands, in the hands of Christ. All the authority was given to Christ. Is that not what Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ has all the authority. So He has great confidence and great power to do whatever the will of God is. In Luke 10, Luke 10, 22. Luke 10, 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. All the authority of the world is in the hand of the Son. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son Wills to reveal Him. Not only is all the authority in the hand of Christ, so that whatever happens to Him, happens according to the will of Christ. But also the redemption, or the non-redemption of people, is in the power of Christ, in the hand of Christ, according to the will of Christ. So, knowing so, He is not troubled. He's not overwhelmed. He doesn't sin. He understands what the truth is. He understands His role and His power in the world and has confidence in it, does not detract from it to accomplish the will of the Father. We pick it up in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. Because He knew all of this, He rose from supper. It gave Him the confidence, the courage, and the humility To rise from supper, he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, girded himself about. Laying aside aside his garments means his outer garments, but he took a towel, girded himself, and his outer garments likely his upper garment because it would extend below the waist and, and to the knees and maybe as far as the ankles. And so he lays aside that and wraps a towel about his waist because he's going to wash the disciples' feet and then dry them with a towel. Christ is going to stoop low, bend low to do so. Verse 5, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Likely, verse 5 is describing the fact that this was what he undertook to do, and it's summarizing it, But what happens in the dialogue from 6 to 20 is what's going on here. And then after that, his um, dialogue about who's going to betray him while they're eating the meal. So, this in verse 5, washing the disciples' feet, wiping them with a towel. There is no evidence of washing the feet of others at a regular meal in the Bible. In that sense, this is a unique event. There is no sense in which or no passage where the host washes the feet of his guests or even of his friends during the meal. This is A unique event in that sense. However, washing the feet of others or washing one's own feet having come inside the house from outside and preparing oneself to eat, that's not a new concept. The newness of this incident has to do with Jesus the Master doing so to his own disciples. In that sense, this is unique. But we have examples, for example, Genesis 18, Abraham, he provided water for the three men who visited him in Genesis eighteen four. He provided water for them to wash their feet. And why would they need to wash their feet? Because often the roads were dirt roads, dirt and sandy roads, dusty roads, so that when people who wear sandals come inside the house, they often get refreshed By not only drinking water, washing their face and hands, but also washing their feet before they settle in in the house. Whether it's their own house or someone else's house, the host or hostess will provide water for the guest to wash his own feet. Genesis 18 verse 5. Genesis 19 verse 2. Lot does the same with the two angels who come to visit Lot in Sodom. Genesis 19 verse 2. But it becomes more of a humbling thing when the host or hostess offers to wash the feet of the guest. We have an example of that in 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. 25 verse 41. 25:41. 41. This is Abigail whose husband had just died. And remember Abigail prevented a slaughter of herself and other people, innocent slaughter of herself and other people. So she says this to David. Abigail to David, verse 41. And she arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, Your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. She offers herself to be a maid or a maidslave to wash the feet of David's servants. She's humbling herself in that manner. And then in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 10. 1 Timothy 5, verse 10. The widow who is worthy. The worthy widow to receive support from the church. 1 Timothy 5, we'll read verses 9 to 10. 9 to 10. Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Remember, we're talking about a place where people wear sandals. They walk on dusty roads, coming from one place to another, to their own house or to someone else's house. And here... The widow who shows hospitality is also the widow who washes the saints' feet, offers to wash the saints' feet to help them in her home or in other venues. She's willing to do so. In this way, washing the feet of others is a sign of great humility. Washing the feet of others as a sign of great humility. Humility. We know that this happened in John chapter 12 when we find that Mary, Mary in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, six days before the Passover, she anointed the feet of Christ. She anointed the feet of Christ with a costly ointment And then wiped his feet with her hair. Verse 3. Chapter 12 and verse 3. Wiped her feet with her hair. And he commends her. Christ commends her for doing so. We understand the context, right? Of washing feet being an evidence of humility. This is what Jesus is displaying. The master himself doing it for them. verse 6 John 13:6 And so he came to Simon Peter he said to him Lord do you wash my feet Simon Peter is astounded because he knows that only someone of a lower rank someone who is putting himself in a lower rank which a host or hostess would do or anybody would do putting oneself in a low rank like Abigail did calling herself a maidslave of the servants of the Lord meaning the David the Lord David the King that that's what she was doing she was putting herself lower only someone who, have, who is already of a low rank or puts himself in a low rank would do so and Simon's thinking Lord you are higher than I am you are my master you're my teacher you're my Lord you're the Savior why are you doing this? Now, either Simon Peter is doing this in, or objecting initially, either sincerely or insincerely. Now, in the first case, if he's doing it sincerely, when he persists, that's when he sins. When, in verse 8, if he first starts out being honest and with a good intention... He has to be, by verse 8, because Jesus has already explained himself. Verse 8, Never shall you wash my feet. Then Jesus threatens him, and then he backs off, he repents. Right? So, if he started off well in this conversation, but persisted in doing wrong, and in unbelief and refusal to obey, then Jesus confronts it, and then he repents. He allows it to happen. And even more, he says, My hands and my head too. Do whatever you want, Christ, is the point. But others take him to be sinning because he should have known already. He should have known already. When Jesus does anything, when he speaks, when he acts, should we not go along? Should we not present our own wisdom? Uh, Should we avoid presenting our own wisdom first? Didn't Jesus lay aside his garments in their presence? Didn't he gird himself... In their presence? Did he not pour water into the basin in their presence? Was he not about to do it in their presence? They all saw it. So if Jesus is about to do something, should we ever contradict it? No. So, in that way, if we take it that way, then Peter should not have objected at all. Yes, he is the Lord. Lord, do you wash my feet? Yes, that's true. But he should not have objected at all. And because he objects Jesus first gives him a mild answer verse 7 first the mild answer and then the harsh answer verse 7 Jesus answered and said to him what I do what I do you do not realize now but you shall understand hereafter you don't understand now but you'll understand after That answer should have satisfied Simon Peter. That answer should have relieved him. Okay, I was wondering, but you clarified. You know what you're doing. It's no accident. And you're insisting, Christ. You're insisting, Lord. So, and I'm going to comprehend it later. You're saying, you're assuring me I'm going to comprehend it later. So I should not object. So verse 8, however. Peter doesn't get it. Verse 8, Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Now he exclaims it. He raises his voice and says to Christ, and that's wrong. Should we ever raise our voice in contradiction to Christ? No. No, we shouldn't. Peter did so. Never shall you wash my feet. Your Bibles have an exclamation, correct? He raised his voice. He yelled at Christ or shouted at something he did like that in opposition to Christ. When Peter turned up the heat, even though Jesus gave him a mild rebuke in verse 7, Jesus confronts his objection with equal and even more force. Correct? Verse 8, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That is a perilous threat, right? You have no part with me when Peter heard those words? You better let this happen because you better understand why I'm doing this. You see, the greater part of this is not the illustration, the actual act of washing the feet, which was important and and had its place. But Christ is trying to teach them a lesson. And the lesson is, I'm trying to teach you that I am the one that washes you. My blood washes you clean, makes you white as snow or whiter than snow or as wool. Like that, that's the way I make you. So my imminent death is necessary. And I'm trying to illustrate that by washing you with water because my blood will wash you. That's what he was implying in verse eight. And Peter knew when he said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He wanted nothing to do with having no part with Christ. Even if he didn't understand it at this point. Or he's beginning to understand it at this point. He knew to be apart from Christ is not good for anybody. He knew that earlier in John chapter 6. At the end of John chapter 6, when Many of the disciples walked away. 66. They walked away from Christ. Jesus turns to the 12 and says to them in verse 67, Jesus therefore said to the 12, You do not want to go away also do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, We're not going anywhere. I'm never going to leave you. He always wanted to have a part with Christ. He always wanted to cling to Christ. Not that he was consistent with that always, but he had that fundamentally in his heart. He was a converted man. And he had a new heart. He still had the flesh to beat down, but he still had a new heart. And he knew he could not depart and go to anyone else or to anything else. He had to stick with Christ. And then the contrast in verses 70 and 71, Judas Iscariot is a devil... He's going to betray Christ. Peter will not betray Christ, but Judas will. Well then, when Judas, or excuse me, when Peter understood that he would have no part with Christ if he didn't let this happen, it would be a fruit of his unbelief. Verse 9, John 13, 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Also my hands and, and my head. Peter is now saying, I concede. I know I'm wrong. You can wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, whatever you want to wash, you wash, because I know whatever you say is right. Whatever you do is good. I want to follow you. He had hesitation because of resistance and stubbornness and sin, but now... He's openly saying, Wash whatever you want of me. Verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, for this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. Well, who's the one who's not clean? Judas Iscariot. John 6:70 70 to 71, John 13:2, John 13:11, John 13:18, John 17:12. And ultimately we see Judas murder himself in Matthew 27:3 to 5. There is no doubt that Judas never was saved. He never was saved though he preached and lived according to the gospel. He never was saved. But here Jesus is illustrating how when one bathes, he's completely clean. And then when he walks around, even if he walks around in his own house or in his own yard, his feet might get dirty. In places where they don't have windows and they don't have fans, they depend on cross ventilation windows on one side of the house and the other side of the house directly opposite each other so that the wind that blows outside can blow on the inside well some of the dust comes on the inside of the house and makes the house dusty they need to also sweep at least once a day in their own houses they have to sweep their house once a day because of dust coming from outside so if you take a bath in your house your whole body gets clean but throughout the day especially if you don't go outside, like let's say women, if they don't go outside, their feet will still get dirty throughout the day and they ne- uncomfortably they become uncomfortable later in the day and they still want to wash their feet, even though they didn't go outside onto the streets. They wash their feet. Here, Christ is saying, you know it works that way. You know it works that way, but what am I illustrating? What's he illustrating? He's illustrating that once we are saved in Christ, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once we are saved in Christ, John 5, 24, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Those are the ones who are completely redeemed. There's no condemnation. They have passed out of death into life. However, our feet get dirty because we're still in the world. Correct? Our feet getting dirty, Christ also provides the provision to wash our feet. And what is that provision? 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. First John 1 John seven, If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Those are present tense verbs. Walking and cleansing cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is spoken or written to the church. We need to be constantly cleansed by the blood of Christ. We need to constantly confess sin to be forgiven of sin, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He writes so that we avoid sin, so that we not sin, because we strive for perfection, progressive sanctification. But when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, whose blood continues to cleanse us from all sin. So our whole body our, or our whole soul was cleansed, Initially, upon our conversion, when we believe in the gospel, right? But then, day by day, we sin, our feet need to be washed again and again, because we still live in the filthy, dusty, dirty world. And therefore, we need Jesus' blood to continually cleanse us. That is what he means in John 13. You are completely clean but not all of you. And if you are completely clean, you still need your feet washed. So he illustrates by washing their feet. And this exchange with Peter highlights this fact. Peter's redeemed. He needs continual cleansing, though. Judas is not redeemed. He will never have any cleansing, whether feet or his whole body. Never. Forever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.